You're listening to Wordsmith, the poetry podcast presented by Miriam Hechtman and Kelly Van Nelson. On this program, we invite poets from all over the world to join us for a one-on-one conversation about their poetry, their craft, and what poetry means to them. From how poetry played out in childhood to its current practice, it's all about the poet and the poem and what's really happening behind the words. Here in Australia, we acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which we produce this program, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and culture. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Today on the show, Ali Whitelock joins Miriam. Ali Whitelock is a Scottish poet and writer. Her new poetry collection, The Lactic Acid in the Calves of Your Despair, is published by Wakefield Press, and her debut collection, And My Heart Crumples Like a Coke Can, also published by Wakefield Press, has a forthcoming UK edition by Polygon Edinburgh. Her memoir, Poking Seaweed with a Stick and Running Away from the Smell, was launched at Sydney Writers' Festival to critical acclaim in Australia and the UK. She's read her work at festivals and events around the world, including the Edinburgh Festival 2018 and 2019. Please welcome Ali Whitelock. Ode to an eggplant. The eggplants weren't worth $10 a kilo, but you'd wanted them so badly to impress me with your vegetarian lasagna, the one you make with the bechamel, the fresh Italian tomatoes, the Parmigiano-Reggiano, the one you make when you sense the urge to run is back in me again. I'd stood in the corner by the dishwasher, watched you peel the garlic, slice the onions, grate the cheese, salt the eggplants to remove the bitterness that always comes at the end of things. Then you fried them in cold-pressed extra virgin olive oil, the expensive one we bought that day at the Blue Mountains Tea Room when we stopped in for homemade scones with blackberry jam and clotted cream and drank them down with two pots of French Earl Grey, the fancy one they sell in David Jones with the wild flowers in it. Do you remember? I gasped when I saw you crush four giant cloves of Russian garlic into the tomatoes to boost your immune system, you said. The virus in my chest still crackling ten days on each time I breathed in and out and laughed, which, granted, wasn't very often back then. Too salty, you said, grimacing after the first mouthful, and me, I could barely tell, my tongue and taste buds long since dead, everything now tasted of air. Well, did you rinse them before you cooked them, I asked, you know, to remove the salt? Of course I did, you replied, casting me a sideways glance as if I'd just asked if you'd ever really loved me. Just let's start at the very beginning. I feel like breaking out into song now. (laughs) Are you on a mountain in Switzerland? (laughs) Totally. I am the Von Trapp family trio oh my god i thought they were called there was more than three what am i there was like seven of them seven of them i don't know what the word is for that but yeah let's start at the very good at the very good beginning (laughs) and i'd love to know what role poetry played in your childhood if any yeah what you remember tell us there was none are there any other questions (laughs) it's like none there wasn't any like, you know, I guess the only nod to poetry would be on um, Valentine's Day. You know, Robbie Burns, my love is like a red, red rose, right? Old Lang Syne, it's a song, but it's kind of a poem, I guess. You know, New Year's Eve, 
um, there wasn't any, there wasn't any, there weren't any books around in our house. No, you know, my parents didn't read. It was, you know, super working class, super hard working. Like who had time to read, you know, children to feed just, you know, hard, kind of a hard life in those early days. And yeah, there wasn't any, anything like that. I mean, in terms of art, there were other things. My mother was great at doing artsy crafts with us kids to kind of keep us entertained, you know, but there wasn't any reading. And um, so consequently, I, I grew up not reading and kind of going to school and reading the minimum that I had to read. And, and I've really had to force myself to read in later life because it's just not something that I did or knew, you know, and that's, you know, that's my confession. <laughs> I, I listen. I listen because I that often confession. hear you often hear people talking about the writing about writing, and they will say, "If you want to write, first you must read, read, read." You know that is a mantra. When I, I had already, I I sort of wrote my first book, which was a memoir, without really having read much at all, and so I've never subscribed to that theory that you must read in order to write, although you know 900,000 people would disagree with me but that's my experience of it and what would you, you know. say then about writing as a child was there any inclination no I I the I kind of started my sister moved away to London when I was 20 I was still living in Scotland maybe I was 18 19 and in those days there was no internet I know I look really really young <laughs> In those days, you had to write a letter and post it to your sister in London. And, and so I used to take great delight in sitting down and writing letters to her, which I thought were wildly entertaining. And I used to illustrate them in all sorts of strange things. And, and so I guess if, if my writing started anywhere, it started there. You know, I'd send them to her. That was the end of it. And then about three or four years ago, she actually presented me with a box of all of those letters that I'd written to her 30 years ago in London. I didn't even know she had them. I didn't even know if she really read them, you know, but I had, I had great fun writing them. So when I think back to when I started writing, it was that. It was just writing letters without any, any sense of any outcome or this might come to think something or I'm now a writer. It was just like, this is so awesome making myself laugh while I write these letters, you know, it was as simple as that. And so that's where my writing started. So would you really. say that that humour was a big part of that writing? Because, you know, you're writing. Yeah. I think, you know, there can be super sad poems. Um, the poet James Tate, who I spoke about the other night in an interview, so um, I hate to repeat myself, but he's quoted as saying, I like my sad poems, but I like my funny poems too. Um, but if I can break a reader's heart and make them laugh in the same poem, then that's the best. And without really knowing why, somehow for me, intuitively, when I write, I, um, uh, when I get a, a kind of a sad thing going, somehow humour will come in. You know, it's not something I think about or try to do. It's, I guess it's all a product of my upbringing, my culture. Everything in Scotland is funny when you're growing up and especially in that real, <laughs> real black humour when you're kind of living in sort of poor areas or, and, you know, and, and not having much laughter. You do have laughter and you have to laugh. And so I guess that's why my writing is infused with the sort of humour in strange places, humour that goes alongside sadness and tenderness. And somehow that makes the funny stuff funnier, I think. And the funny bits make the sad stuff sadder, I think. Yeah, <laughs> but I it's mean, not something I think about. It's just how it so happens. It's just how it comes out. And it's very much you, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I love, I love humour. I love comedy so much. And part of me wishes that I could have been a stand-up comedian. I just love to make people laugh. And, um, and so, you know, somewhere, somewhere along the line, I guess I managed to do that a wee bit in my poems. But I'm not brave enough to be a stand-up comedian. Certainly not now. Not yet. <laughs> I'm too busy pushing my piano around. <laughs> <laughs> I, can, I can see that on stage. 
<laughs> so, okay, so you're, you're 20, 19, 20, you've been writing letters. Take us through the next part of your journey where writing played a role for you and who inspired you? Well, the next part of the journey is I find myself in Australia uh, when I'm 30. So I've done nothing other than write letters to my sister. I failed HSC English or I was, yeah, I was removed from the English department and put into geography, right? Because I didn't understand why we had to analyze things. I couldn't, I just didn't, my brain doesn't deconstruct stuff well. (laughs) And so I was removed from English. I didn't do the HSC. Finished school, came to Australia when I was 30. No writing, no writing, no writing got to age 40 and um, and I'd been working in cafes and having a lovely life in Sydney and I um, I just suddenly one day thought I surely there must be more surely there must be something else I could be doing other than carrying as I it was that sort of came as a bit of a lightning bolt one day I when I was carrying some soup to a table for two customers I kind of went oh my god this is what I do with my days carry soup to tables you know there's nothing wrong with that and it certainly served me well but I needed something more than that then so I kind of went on the lookout for a course that I could do that would make me really windswept and interesting and and that would suddenly make me this more 3D human in a way you know and I could dazzle people at dinner parties with my sort of you know wonderful new art form that I've just discovered right but I, so I, I went on, I didn't go online, I guess I went to the community college and picked up the magazine because there wasn't any internet then. Well, I wasn't using it. it was, I guess, yeah, I guess I was 40. There was internet, but there wasn't. <laughs> How old are you, Ellie? <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, so anyway, I, read, I, I enrolled in a course and it was like painting for beginners because I thought if you were creative, it must mean that you painted. I didn't really know that creativity really meant anything other than putting colour on a, a canvas, right? So I did painting for beginners and I was totally crap at it. I had no affinity for it whatsoever. And I was like, oh God, you know, I thought that was going to be the thing that would finally make me interesting. And then I thought, well, let's try something else. So then I went online, uh, I went, went to my, <laughs> the brochure and I saw um, photography, photography for beginners. And I think this is for me. This is totally my thing now. I found it, went to the thing, totally not interested at all. Couldn't, couldn't be less interested. And so I thought, well, what are we going to try now? So then there was a course on, you know, cooking and I thought yeah okay I'll try it when I couldn't care less in desperation I get to my sort of dog-eared little brochure for WEA and um, I went oh creative writing for beginners I thought well I've tried everything else I'll give it a go right so I somewhat reluctantly showed up for the first night and my mind was blown wide open and I don't think I've ever gone a day without writing since. So what it was, was it? What blew your mind? It was, um, well, the, the, the guy running it was just this really awesome guy, super chill. There was maybe 10 or 12 of us in the room and, you know, we, we went, it was for six weeks, one night a week for six weeks. So we were to bring a piece of writing the next week and we all just have a chat about it, you know, so it was just that informal. And so, yeah, he'd said to us that that on that first night. So, you know, go away and write something. Anyway, I raced home. I couldn't get to my computer quick enough. I started battering out stuff. And the process of writing took me to somewhere in myself, which I had no idea that place even existed. I never felt more myself in my entire life. I was just, I was just in, in heaven. I was in heaven. So I kept writing, you know, rocked up the next week with my piece of writing, read it out and 
and just kept doing that. And when the six weeks were over, I just kept doing that. And I eventually had enough material to put together into a memoir because everything I was writing was all kind of family stuff. And uh, yeah, I, I somehow stitched it all together and um, I got an agent who took it and then we got it published quite quickly here in Australia and in the UK. And you've and never been published before in anything? No. Nothing? No. Not a magazine, not an online? No, nothing. I'd never... I'd, I'd, I'd never written anything except a letter to my sister. <laughs> so that was fantastic. And I just kept writing and I just kept writing and I just kept writing. So, um, you know, just lots of scraps of stuff that, because when I wrote the first book, I didn't sit down and say, well, now I'm going to write a book. Okay. Page one, you know, it wasn't that for me. It was just a scrap memory from up there and then a bit of a fragment of a memory from somewhere else. And I often think of that process now as a bit of a patchwork quilt, you know, and I just work on one little patch at a time. And then eventually I had a pile of them in my living room floor. And I thought, well, how am I going to join all these together? And somehow I mapped a way through them and joined them and, and they became a book. So I wasn't faced with the prospect of I ha I'm writing a book and it's a mammoth challenge. It was just, I was just having the time of my life making a patchwork quilt that somebody might one day get a little laugh at, you know, <laughs> that was enough. And how you know? did that move then into poetry? Well, I don't even really know. I guess I was always someone who said they hated poetry. I was that person. Oh, poetry, my eyes would just roll back in my head and I didn't understand it. And of course it stems from school and, the sort of poetry that you might have to read in sort of early English classes. I don't relate to that at all, as many people don't in poetry, which is why it gets a bad name. But um, how did I, I don't know, except I was writing prose and writing prose and writing this second memoir. And then one day I just wrote down, uh, I didn't know if it was a poem, but it was maybe five or six lines, which seemed to be, dense emotionally dense and I thought well shit what's that I wonder if that's a poem can I claim that that might be a poem given I spent my entire life saying I hate poetry and so I don't I don't know how I flipped into it it just so happened something came out one day and it was short and I thought maybe that's a poem did and you so, did someone tell you it is a poem or you told yourself? Yeah, I went along to the New South Wales Writers' Centre, as it happens. Martin Longford was running a six-week course, one night a week, and it was a discussion about poetry. So it wasn't necessarily to write your own poems and rock up and have them discussed, although that was a part of it as well. But it was a discussion around poetry, and it was endlessly fascinating. So I went along to that, and he went around the room, why are you here, why are you here? And, and when he came to me, I said, I'm here because I started writing short things and I don't know if they're poems. I don't know if I can call them poems because I have so zero experience of writing it and even really reading poetry. So, you know, we, the next week we all read a thing that we'd written, a short thing, and, and, and Martin Longford confirmed that what I was writing was poetry, so that was fine. Wow. <laughs> so then I just felt so excited so excited by this new thing this new way of writing I you know and, and prose started to become too wordy for me it was it was just it, it seemed to take too long to get to the emotion of things and here was this thing called poetry which to me it felt as though a thing where I could hold the emotion of the story in the palm of my hand and that's what a poem is. It can just sit there and it doesn't need to be the whole story. I don't need the start, the middle and the end of the story. A poem can just be a moment within an experience. And that blows my mind that, that's, that a poem can be written about a moment within an experience because I've been so used to, back in 1964 yeah. when I was born, blah, 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 blah. You know, that whole trajectory. Explanation. And I just love that. You know, one thing that Martin Longford did say at the time was, it's not poetry's job to explain. So just following from what you said, you know, there's no explanation required. And that is liberating as well. Mm. And so you kind of get to drop these little kind of almost poetry bombs and people will, will relate to them or not. It doesn't really matter. And they're not for everybody, but one might be for one person. And somehow that has to be enough of a payoff, you know, and... Somehow it is, you know, the payoff for me is in the writing of it. 
and if somebody likes it or it speaks to them in some way then that is doubly I'm going to use the awesome word that we said we weren't going to use but <laughs> I think you've said so it three awesome. times already oh have I <laughs> and I've got it recorded so you know it's all there uh, we'll be checking I'll be fact checking um, so how do you know it's poetry and I'm just going to read this a great quote by Emily Dickinson that I've always loved where she says mm-hmm. if I feel physically as if the top of my head oh, were yeah. taken off I know that is poetry mm. Yeah, I mean, I, so are you asking my definition of yeah. a poem? Yeah, it's something When you like know that. it is. Wait, about my own work or in general? Yeah, about your own work. Oh, about, about my own work. Um, how do I know it's a poem? Well, when, I, I mean, I guess when I'm writing a poem, it's because I've had an emotional response to something, whether it be happy, sad, anger, you know, disappointment or whatever so I already take that emotion whatever it is to the page so I'm planning on it being a poem there are times where I just jot down a few lines and it might just be a sense about what has happened without any emotion in it but I will then turn that into a poem proper and I will inject the emotion and I will put you know I'll take it line by line and go well that's a really boring line what do I need to put in there and it reminds me of a story about this artist, actually, who had painted this scene of a sort of pastoral landscape. And it was, it was really quite a boring scene. And as he looked at it, he thought, oh, I just, he, he, he drew a little flying pig in the top left-hand corner, you know. And then it just like, the, 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 the painting just lifted and it was something very different and yet quite a boring landscape, right? And when the, somebody bought the painting, took it home, he as the artist would take it home and hang it for them. And then the person who bought it said, I'm just so intrigued, you know, what is the meaning of that flying pig in the corner? He's like, <laughs> it was just like really boring otherwise. So I just popped a flying pig in there. And so the thing is, that's not really illustrating any point other than <laughs> if you've got a boring line in your poem, little flying pig can really you know so I just kind of like to take each line by line by line that line is it working on its own yeah some you know the next line that's really dull what do we need to do here <laughs> so I'm not answering the question at all that is know, good but, no you are but, but I but mean you, flying, and, pigs. flying pigs and you know it's a poem does every <laughs> poem need to contain a flying pig Every poem, and it may not be true for every poem I've ever written, but my favourite poems are the ones that are, are, don't quite have an explanation as to why that works. Mm. So there's, there is some kind of, I hate to use the word magic, but there's something going on. You know, when you look at a series of words on the page, well, if you take each word individually, of course, they're boring. But put together in a certain way, in a certain order, with a certain something, they will lift off the page like they grow their own little, you know, wings are like little pigs and they grow their wings and it will, it will yeah. Sorry, and do you, while, while you're writing, do you say it aloud? No, I don't. I don't. I mean, obviously in my head, I don't, I don't say it aloud. No, not until it's at the point of needing to be printed out on a piece of paper. And then at that point, I'll start to say it aloud. But um, it takes quite a while to get to that stage for me. It can take many weeks. It can take, it could even take months. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about your craft. Are you someone that carries a notebook and a pencil or a pen and? Oh, I did for a long time and I had one by my bed and all of that. And um, I don't tend to now. So now it's, if I'm driving along and something occurs to me, I'll either, you know, record it into my phone or I'll say to Thomas who's sitting next to me write this down uh, so no I, I haven't been doing that lately I mean now that I'm you know now that we run around with our phones I tend to sort of record into it you know and that that works too except you never go back to the voice memos and you can never find the one that was so amazing it was going to change your life it's, yeah okay and then where do you write your poetry well you know before the bushfires I packed up my little laptop every morning and went out to a local cafe because I needed to be out in the world to write. And, and when the bushfires came, we couldn't go out. 
I got used to staying at home. So, I mean, I have a desk at home and sometimes the desk at home, sometimes the dining table. That's, that's really where it happens now. You know, the bushfires came, put paid to my going out. Then I've even forgotten what the next thing was, but here we are in pandemic and all of the training throughout the bushfires of, you know, of the training, training myself to stay at home. It was difficult mm-hmm. at first to be at home because I live in a bushfire zone. Maybe I should say that. That's probably important. And so it was just too hot and t- too smoky to go out and write outside in a cafe. So, yeah, so that's where it happens, just here at my desk. Yeah. And how long would you, is there, do you have poems that come out in five minutes and my God, what a poem. And then you have poems that you've worked on for 10 years. Mm. Yeah. I've, I, you know, I, I guess I've got a handful that came out. I've probably got five that came out in five minutes, but you know, others, the others, they take, they can take a long time. They can take a long, long time. And you know what? I love that they take a long time. I have come to the point where I love I love the process of writing it. I love the process of finding the poem. It's like, you know, trying to find the statue within the block of marble, right? I just love that process so much. The chipping away, the chipping away, the chipping away, the chipping away, that when I finally feel that it's done, I feel a bit sad because that's finished now. That little statue (laughs) can go on the mantelpiece now and gather dust, I suppose. But the process has become much more important to me than the actual finished product, which is really quite interesting to me to feel that way. And you you decided to go full-time as a writer, is that right? Yeah, I did. I took the ridiculously kind of (laughs) insane decision to do that. Who does that? What what was that about? Well, I'll tell you what that was about. I was working my full-time jobs and um, I... My mum and father lived lived in Scotland and I decided, my mum was quite sick and she was in Scotland and I decided I would go, I would have to go and see mum because she was sick, you know. Mum and my father were separated already and so by the time I, my ticket came around to get to, to Scotland, mum had made this miraculous recovery and so I went anyway, I thought, oh yeah, awesome, I'll have a whole, oh, awesome, that's five times I've used awesome fact check (laughs) and so I I thought awesome I'll have a holiday instead so I got back to Scotland long story short I I swung in through my father father's place to visit him and and he was gravely ill and um, we hadn't known that he was he was so sick you know we have had very turbulent relationship Um, and yeah anyway long story short I guess I went to see him each day eventually they couldn't find out what was wrong with him eventually he was admitted to hospital and then he died a few days later completely unexpectedly so I was with him when he died so it was traumatic in so many levels you know the level of being with this man who's just been a tyrant his whole life long and and I've had 20 years of therapy. I was actually able to sit with him and it was, it was, it was okay, you know, but the work that had gone in prior to being able to, to find myself in a position where I could just sit with him and not be terrified and not be scared. And, you know, it was quite it was a very big deal. And so, yeah, we got the, I got the call this morning before I went to see him to say, you need to get to the hospital quickly. He doesn't have long. It was, it was, uh, such a traumatic moment. I was 40 miles away from the hospital, got in the car, got to the hospital, went in the wrong direction, turned around, got to the hospital, find, you know, abandoned the car in the car park, ran into the hospital, got there, and, uh, and he, he, he died 40 minutes later or something like that. So when I stepped out into the, the abnormally bright Scottish sunshine that day, I... I was just sort of struck by a lightning bolt that said, I've seen death. I now know that that's going to happen to me one day. <laughs> you know, as odd as that may seem, I just had this absolute knowledge that, because, you know, you go through life and you kind of think, yeah, one day, one day, thinking you have many days ahead of you. And I just had the realization that who knows how many days any of us had. And I'd had this ringside sleep, um, this ringside seat at death 
and, and to be with another human as they're leaving this life is an extraordinary privilege. It's one of the most important things I've ever done in my life, you know. And it's all, it was also, to me, it felt as though death was absolutely remarkable and unremarkable at the same time. He was breathing in and out and in and out. And one, at one stage, a, a, a breath went in, it came out, and another one just didn't go in. I couldn't believe the simplicity of that. I couldn't believe that a human just... Uh, of course we know that right we know intellectually but to experience it it changed my life like it it blew the top of my head off and so I stepped out that hospital that day and I said I am I am going to go to my grave knowing that I pursued the thing that I know I love more than anything I'm going to pursue that if it's the last thing I do and in order to do that I need to stop working my crappy jobs <laughs> we need to eat still but I, am, I just needed to give myself a chance. I needed to give my writing a chance because who knows when, it's, when is my turn coming for that, you know. And also my father had lived a really angry and aggressive life and you thought you had a life and you did that with it, you know, and all of that sadness. So, yeah, I, we, I came back to Sydney. We, we, you know, we buried him a few days later. It's all so surreal, you know, I was going there for, my, for other reasons and to find yourself catapulted into this, one of the most intense emotional experiences I've ever had in my life. And, you know, I read his eulogy and then I was on a flight the next day back to Sydney. And I got back to Sydney, Thomas and I talked about my desires to write full time, to give it a go. You know, I just thought I'm going to, give it a go for a year, two years at the most. And then I'll, so we sold our house in Sydney, which is how we managed to, that's why we live far out of Sydney now so that we could afford to live on one wage. And from the first day that I stopped working, like I resigned one week, the next week when I'd stopped working, I was out of my bed at six in the morning still. I was in the shower. I was at my desk out of fear because I was no longer bringing in any money. I had to produce something. I had to produce something. I couldn't, I couldn't just kind of say, oh, let's see how I feel later about writing. You know, oh, I might, you know, wait till the muse. There couldn't be any of that. I had to make a go of it. <clears throat> so I, I got to my, 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 my writing became my new job. My job that, you know, obviously I earned nothing. But my writing was my job. I got up, I went to my desk every day, every day, every day, every day. And in the first 12 months I had written and my heart crumples like a Coke can, my first collection. And I got that published. And then, you know, I submitted it to the publisher and it got accepted. And then I just kept writing every day, every day, every day, every day. You know, and now I have that second new collection. And that's, um, <laughs> that's how I came to be writing full time. You know, and I think that was five years ago now. And the, the, my routine now for me is just, this is what I do now. I get up and I write and it's, it's just a bit like breathing, I suppose, or, you know, somebody else's routine where they go to the gym or whatever they do, but this is my routine. I don't have to think about it. I'm a bit like one of Pavlov's dogs. I open the lid to my laptop and I'm there. How do you think your writing's changed over this five years of discipline and, and just, I guess, that surrender to that this is what you do? I think it's, um, I think my writing is more compact, you know. I mean, I think that's, um, <clears throat> or more dense maybe, but I think that's um, what poetry is anyway for me. It's the sort of compact. So how has it changed? Um, I have, I have a lot more faith in pieces that are not working now because I have enough experience now to know that that's not working right now, but there is no way I'm letting it go. I will always go back to it and I'm, I'm, I'm going to make it work. I don't care. I don't care what it costs me. I'm going to make it work. And when those, when you get to those sorts of, um, those points in poems, those are the times you need to think about the flying pigs. You know, 
it probably just needs a flying pig. You know, and if it's all kind of linear and here's a bit of a story and it's all a bit predictable and, you know, get rid of the cliches. How am I going to say this a bit more differently? Yeah, and and some sometimes if you sort of get a reader to look one way and then you're sort of turning their head very quickly in the opposite direction within a poem, I think those kinds of, I'm not even, I couldn't even give you an example of that right now. If there's something that you won't write about. Mm. Well, <clears throat> is there anything I won't write about? No, I don't, I mean, I don't think there is, you know, I'm going to say that. I mean, I've, I've, I've hung a lot of my dirty laundry out in my poems. And for some reason, I didn't think twice about that. Didn't, it seems to me, if you're going to write, surely you would write 100% honestly. And if you're not going to write 100% honestly, you are you telling the whole story if you're leaving out the bits that are sort of not that, you know, are a bit unsavoury? Are you going to leave them out? Why? They're the best bit, something. You know, the the bits where you acted at your worst, the bits where you, without glorifying it, you know. I can't imagine there's any anything theme or topic I wouldn't write about and in a way you know if I did have that thought and, and if I did think oh shit can I really write about that oh that would be a green light for me to write about that thing if, if yeah for me if I'm not going to write honestly and I like those difficult subjects there's a lot of meat in there you know I don't really want kind of I don't want obviously I don't want work that's banal to me and if I left that stuff out, what, what is that, really? What is that for me personally? I like the warts and all. I like, I like that. I think all of those things, infidelity, death, they've all got a place. They've all got a place in art. They've all, they belong there, you know. And maybe I'm so passionate, I believe so passionately in that because... In my, when I was a kid, the, the stuff I read didn't reflect anything about my life. It didn't reflect anything about the poverty and domestic violence, you know, drunk fathers, puppies being kicked to death in front of you. I never read any of that and anything that I, you know, I didn't read much, obviously, but the stuff that we were prescribed to read in school, nothing, I didn't relate to any of that. So maybe, you know, in speaking to you now, I, that's partly why. It's so important to me to show all aspects of life, including the shitty aspects and the shitty aspects of ourselves. I think, I think, you know, from feedback that I've had about some of those poems that I've written, people, I think, have felt a bit of, a, you know, to be able to see yourself in, in, in a poem or to see, to see yourself reflected in a painting or whatever, you know, a scenario in a movie, there's such a validation in those moments where you think you're not alone. Oh, she did that too. I've been keeping that secret all these years. And yet here it is in a poem and oh, there must be other people in the world who have done these things, have thought these things, who have felt these things. And somehow that seems to be the point of the point of it all. <laughs> the point of art, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think if I had to, after reading some of your poetry and speaking with you as well, it's just the juxtaposition. I find yeah. And in some way, in all the poems, there's that. And yeah. it's just that balancing kind of act of, we have that and there's, you know. Yeah, yeah. And I can say that I'm not really able to articulate that, but but that's true. You know, it's hard to articulate what your own work is about and how it works, but yeah, somewhere along the line, I need a bit of this. And then, but if you're looking at that, but I'm all, I also want you to look at this. And when you look at those things too, those two things, sadness, happiness, death, life, you know, adultery, true love. They are, they, they love each other. <laughs> and they can't live without each other. They can't live without each other. <laughs> and then we get to stuff them into poems. 
keep forget him in a half Nelson and wrestle them. I love wrestling a poem to the floor. I love it more than I love life itself. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. All right, how about we do a couple readings? Okay. So we, we touched on a little bit about what this is about. So it's just tracking my, how I ended up in Scotland um, uh, when my, the, that fateful time. Waters for fish. As cliche as it may sound, I always imagined I'd get the call in the middle of the night, the one that would announce that you were dead or at the very least be dying. I'd be bleary-eyed, would thank the caller and hang up grateful that I am safe, my 17,000 kilometres away and geographically exempt from delivering your eulogy, from shaking hands with those I have no wish to shake hands with. I would not have to be seen to weep, nor to wonder at the choice of photograph someone else has chosen for your order of service, for these are the things that happen when you're gone too long. Weirdly, I was coming back to visit you, Mum. You'd been unwell, minor kidney failure for fuck's sake. How many years have we been asking you to drink water? Waters for fish, you'd say. Not so smart now, are you? Then you made this miraculous recovery too late. I'd already booked my ticket to come and sit at your bedside, to hold your hand, to keep you company on your descent into complete renal failure. So my daughterly dash to Glasgow would become a holiday instead, the last of which was in Spain and too long ago, though I still recall the sweetness of the sangria, the paellas filled with prawns and crabs and bits of lobster I scraped to the side of my plate. And I know a holiday in Glasgow is not for everyone. Sure, we don't get paella and we don't get crabs, but we do get fish and chips and deep fried Mars bars and unending poetry nights that run the length of Argyle Street and around the corner into Shipbank Lane. So I got onto Google and I planned. I booked myself on writer's groups, on open mics, circled poetry readings I'd attend. I'd hop across to Paris, maybe Berlin, fuck it, why not Barcelona? But a quick drop in to see you, father, revealed you were a sliver of yourself. A flaked almond of a man, a fragment like someone took a photocopy of you, reduced it to A5, printed it in grayscale. You look like shit, I told you. Embraced you. I know you mouthed back. I didn't know you could no longer speak that your teeth no longer fitted you, that you could barely swallow, and no one knew. Not even Margot, the annoying nutritionist who did the home visits that very soon, in exactly nine days as it turns out, I would not be hopping across to Paris, maybe Berlin, fuck it, why not Barcelona, but would be delivering your eulogy written by my sister and scheduled to be read somewhere between the eagles taking it easy and John Denver filling up our senses like sleepy blue oceans. And I am unsure I will make it past the most perfect and excruciating first line. He was no saint, our father, but he used to say he looked like Roger Moore. So there you have it. No flying pigs in that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's the experience in a nutshell, really. Yeah. How, how is it to read it? 
it's okay. I just have an itchy nose. Um, it's okay to read it now because I, you know, in the early days of reading that poem, I sometimes, you know, your voice would crack and it was very hard to read. But um, it's okay. It's okay now, you know. I've read it many times, so. Mm. Now, I wanted to ask you about the titles of your poems. Yeah. What can I tell you? The title to me is as important as the poem. It's a part of the poem. And if the title's not right, the poem's not finished. So I think, um, um, you know, back in the day, I felt, I've been, I've been very inspired by Charles Bukowski. You know, I, wrote, I spoke about this last week on radio. And I think Charles Bukowski's titles, when I first discovered them, they blew my mind. I didn't know a book could be called that. I just didn't know. The captain is out to lunch and the sailors have taken over the ship. <laughs> the days run away like wild horses over the hill. These, I, I mean, so they just kind of seeped into my brain somewhere along the line. And... Um, and yeah, and somehow when I'm, I just need, I just need a, a, a title which is slightly left of centre, a title that will make people go, what? But intrigued enough um, that, that could either make them laugh or just make them feel curious or make them feel a bit devastated, I suppose. So a title can sometimes take as long as the poem, you know. Or often I'll take a line from a poem, which I think, and, and use that. So there's that. This is a poem written as I am, as, uh, as someone who migrated to Australia. And the poem... It doesn't celebrate how amazing I, my life has been in, in Australia. I've had a great life here and continue to have a great life. But when you're a migrant, you're always going to compare the place where you are with how amazing the country that you left was, you know, and it's not true. But there's a hole in me as a migrant and one imagines one's own country is going to fill that hole. It doesn't. So that's just my little um, disclaimer before I read this poem. The blue of God's fucking eyes. <clears throat> Australia, I see you differently now. I am drifting, my bags are packed, I am trundling backwards away from you on my own internal travelator. You used to be enough. Your coconut dipped lamingtons. Your greasy chickle rolls, your postcard fucking views, your she'll be right. Australia, I am far from right. I have aged. What I thought I wanted changed. What I have is no longer enough. A bald man in the street once told me it is an age thing. Someone else with hair arms flailing on a deserted beach under the hell which is a January sun roared to me above an ocean so blue like it was reflecting God's own fucking eyes. How can this not be enough? And I will confess, Australia, I do not know. And I am not alone. Sure, the Sydney blue gums feel it too. We peel and shed in unison, each of us attempting to escape our own skins. Australia, I leak in your searing heat. I swim in pools of my own sweat and wake from menthol dreams of frosts and snow spread thick like wedding cake icing. I dream of winds that bite and howl up tenement closes, of back doors that slam shut with a reassuring bang I have not heard here. Of course I dream of other things too. Twice this week I broke my neck in dreams. The week before, an old man I met as I walked the dog by the sea appeared by my bed in a yellow Macintosh and matching sou'wester, drenched 
as though he'd just circumnavigated the world's oceans in an unseaworthy vessel single-handedly. He was bearing books, all of them dry. Australia, I cannot tell you exactly what I am looking for. All I can tell you is it is not here. Uh, this is called, do I need to give you any kind of thing? No, I guess this is a poem, which are, there are four parts to this poem. I'm only going to read one now. And it's really about, it's about the grief of really never having had my own children. That's probably enough to say about it. Not much of a mother in four parts. Part one. I had my baby dead before she was even born. Caught death, leukemia, fatal blood disorders affecting one in a million newborns. Then there'd be the choking on the coin. I'm frantic, turn her upside down, slap her back. Her face turns blue, she stops breathing. Then the anaphylactic shock, a single peanut, her windpipe swells, I race to emergency, her face turns blue, she stops breathing, repeat, repeat, re-fucking Pete. I marvel at women falling pregnant at the drop of a fedora, risking their hearts on the first rung of the telescopic ladder of eternal pain. When I turned 39, the gynae said, if you're going to try for a baby, you'd better hurry up. Relax, I told him. I'm fertile. I'd been pregnant twice before. He carried on top, tapping his notes into his computer, muttering how he wished he'd had a dollar for every woman over 40 who'd ever said that. We gave it a go, if I'm honest, half-heartedly. Our fedora never dropped, it barely even tipped. Then came the shadow on the ovary. The day before the hysterectomy, I drove my friend to the airport. She was off to the Bahamas to cook for the much too rich and famous. As we hugged goodbye, she whispered, I'm sorry, you'll never be a mother. I cried all the way home. I never thought I'd have made much of a mother. For the same reasons, for years, I resisted having a dog. It is how they worm their way in till your heart is mostly holes like a Swiss fucking cheese. Then before you know it, they have you in a rickety cage, wearing a hard hat and carrying a lamp your rickety cage swinging precariously as you are lowered down the mine shaft of your soul. Once in your mind, the beam from your lamp will fall upon your heart slumped on top of a coal wagon. You will remember you threw it there many suns and moons and Saturns ago. It was not in the best of shape, but you will remember it was still beating. You will see the scabs. You remember how they got there. These scabs have served you well, but they are dry now. It is time to pick them off. As you pick, you understand that to love is not to tiptoe around the crust of your soul. Rather, it is to descend into the fire of your molten core without a harness asbestos suit or dry ice. It is to suffer third degree burns. It is to gasp for breath. It is to watch many canaries die. Yeah. Mm. yeah, so that poem, you know, sometimes when you start to write a poem, you don't know where it's going to take you. And I kind of took myself to this place of my fear of having had a baby, it would have died. And I'm, I'm guessing many mothers and fathers would feel that at some stage, you know, this little thing, what if it dies? What if I, and so I was surprised that so much of that came out when I was kind of writing this, but 
and I guess that's an example of, you know, because I wonder, is this poem too much for people to hear, you know, talking about, you know, caught death and, you know, fatal blood disorders and choking on the coin and all of those awful things that can happen to young children. But I, I guess it's another example of it, it, this is what's in me and I've put it on the page and, and, and then out it goes and it has its own life after that. And do you feel, you know, being someone who, you know, didn't write and learn poetry and do you feel a certain liberation as to what you can do? Like, oh, oh totally. I'll just that into four. Oh, I do what I want. <laughs> I do what I want. You know, when I first, um, I, I, when my, my memoir had come out and I met, I, I was working in the cafe and somebody introduced me to this woman who was quite a famous writer and, and, um, and anyway, I said, oh, my name's Ali, you know, and, and, and I've written, written a book. And she's like, oh, okay. And she said, so did, did you um, did you do a creative writing? Um, did you have a master's? I think she asked me in creative writing. I said, no. And she said, well, did you do this or that? And I said, no, I just sort of, you know, picked up my pen and just kind of, you know, did my thing. And she said to me, you have no idea how lucky you are to come at writing, not knowing that there were rules, not knowing that there was a way to do this and that and an expectation and this and that. So, yeah, I'm lucky in that regard. My lack of education has stood me in great stead. Yeah, but in saying that, you could have then thought, oh, I better go and study this. I, I better know. go read that. And you know that. what? You know what? Somebody said to me, you should do, you should do a master's. Once the first book came out, you should do a master's in creative writing. It will really consolidate, you know, what you, something or other. And I thought, hey, should I? And yeah, I just couldn't, I just couldn't go there. I just didn't want to. I didn't want to know that there were rules and things. And I, yeah, I felt going into academia would, would I, something would be lost somewhere along the line or my brain would need to learn to write academically and I don't want to, you know, who knows, maybe in the future, who knows, but not now. Yeah. Okay, so I'm, I'm just going to finish with <clears throat> any advice to aspiring poets? Or poets. No. You know what? I would just say any anybody who comes to me and asks, you know, for a, for you know, what do I need to do to to get my poems published, or what do I need to do? I think the thing that I say to most people is the most important aspect is the writing. It's just you show up every day and you just do it, and you just work that piece until it's the best you can possibly make it. And then you send it out into the world and if a magazine takes it, it's awesome. But for people who can't quite get themselves to their desk every day, I, I always say to people, take away this myth that you're waiting for the muse to appear. I don't feel like it today because the muse didn't visit. Take away all of that kind of, you know, myth and legend and just see it as work because it is just work, you know, and there are days when you will sit down and the writing will be crap. And that's also called a day of writing. And there will be very occasional days where the writing will work and it will be sublime to you. And that's also a day of writing. And there will be many days where it's average, but it's all writing and it's, you can't have great days of writing and a great poem without having gone through some days of real crap writing. So if that's not for you, maybe that's fine. But for me, that's the most important thing. Showing up every day, knowing that some days it will work, knowing that some days it won't, and keeping, keep on doing it nonetheless because you, because you love the process of it so much. You love to talk, talk to a phrase one more time. You love to get those lines into half Nelsons and wrestle them <laughs> into submission. You know, it's so delicious to me. And if that's not delicious to you, oh, sorry, if that's not delicious to you or if you are attached to the idea of being a writer because that means something to do to you, a writer is someone who writes and so rock up every day and just do it. Make it like breathing. Make it so that when you lift your laptop lid, you too are Pavlov's dog salivating <laughs> and off you go 
and, and, you know, and, and try not to have any expectation on what you're actually going to produce. And don't stand in the way of what you think you want to be writing. If you think, I'm going to write a, a poem today about that flying pig, see what else is going to cut. Let, don't be fixated on what you think that is about in this moment, because it could end up becoming about the child you never had. It could end up becoming about in that moment when you read your father's eulogy. You, I often say, try to stay out of your own way when you're writing the poem or, or prose. Just, just try to stay out of your own way enough. Let the pen do it. Let the pen guide it. Let the be the conduit, whatever. That's what I would say. Fab. Fab. Awesome. Oh my God. <laughs> Fact check seven. You've been listening to Wordsmith, the poetry podcast, today with Miriam Hexman and the awesome Ali Whitelock. Thank you so much for joining us and see you soon. A special thank you to Jessica Chapnick-Khan for her song Precious and to Peter Brimage for the gorgeous logo.